Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study tonight. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Let's not have anybody breaking out in Hey Jude. <clears throat> seeing one here. Uh, we're going to look at this book. Uh, we're going to split it in half over the next couple weeks to finish up the year before we go into the new year. And uh, I've entitled the message, Jude, Contending Against Heretics. Contending Against Heretics. And we'll cover the first 13 verses of the text uh, today. So as we come to the end of the year, <clears throat> if we look about us in a discerning way, we'll note that the spiritual battle still rages, right? Still rages between those who contend for the faith and those who spread heresies. Centuries have passed uh, and gone, come and gone since the days of the apostles. And yet Satan still spreads his lies and God's people are called to defend the faith and preach the truth of scripture in contrast to his agents of deceit. <clears throat> he may not have had to deal with Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or anything else back then, but he had to deal with Judaizers and other false teachers. Um, we have our challenges here as well. So as we look to these challenges before us, we want to turn to the book of Luke and uh, give attention to this epistle. It's the second to the last book in the Bible, of course, which is a it's a prime example of God's servant rebuking heretics and standing firm for the faith. In fact, John MacArthur uh, suggests that Jude is the only New Testament book devoted exclusively to confronting heresy. In fact, he kind of made a joke. You know, in the, in the New Testament, we have the Acts of the Apostles. He calls this book the Acts of the Apostates, apostates <laughs> that are covered in there. So that's kind of what it's looking at. It's a very severe, as you've read it recently, I'm sure you've you can tell that it is a very stern book uh, speaking against heresy. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's estimated that the book of Jude was written around 65 to 70 AD, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem. And many scholars believe that um, the epistle of Jude uses 2 Peter as a basis uh, for some of its teaching. Now, there's those who argue the other way, saying that uh, Peter took his teaching from Jude. But based on other historical evidence, it's most likely Peter might have been martyred before Jude wrote this book. So it was likely that Jude took something from him. Uh, or, a common, or there could have been a common book or a common subject they, they spoke on. It is the fourth shortest book in the New Testament and is the last of eight what we call um, general epistles, which means that they're not directed to any particular church or people group. As we've stated, Jude's main theme here is to confront false teachers who, as one commentator put it, we're using Christian liberty and the free grace of God as a license for immorality. And I'm sure you're aware, if you've read it recently, that there is uh, that type of warning, a severe warning, and we're going to get into all the different details concerning it. This method, though, of confronting and refuting heresies or heretics or spiritual error is just as effective today as it was back in his day. We need to be strong. We need to stand up for the truth and be unashamedly say, thus saith the Lord and proclaim sound doctrine as opposed to unsound doctrine. So let's look at this, just kind of break it down in a few sections. We'll look at what we call the greeting and the exhortation in the first few verses. And we can ask this question, who is Jude? Who is Jude? Well, we don't know for certain, uh, but the consensus among scholars is that he was probably Christ's half-brother. Uh, he does not claim this in his epistle, but he does say that he is the brother of James, and it is generally accepted that the James referred to here is Christ's half-brother, the head of the church in Jerusalem. So let's read the first three verses as we get this greeting and exhortation from Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, 
to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Christ Jesus, may mercy, may mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We'll stop there at that break in verse 3. Now note, he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle. Thus, he could not have been the apostle Judas, the son of James, which is mentioned in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16. So he doesn't call himself that. We're assuming he's, he's not that person. To whom does Jude address this epistle? Well, as I said, it's kind of a general epistle. It doesn't name a church or any particular region. But we can get a fairly good idea with the words that Jude uses here and the references he includes. Like Peter, Jude references a number of Old Testament events and people. And though unlike Peter, he doesn't actually quote directly from the New Test Old Testament. Obviously, most of the Gentiles wouldn't be familiar with these people that he's referring to from the Old Testament. So Jude was probably addressing this epistle to Jewish Christians living in Asia Minor, or what's called the Diaspora, where they were scattered all around the Middle Eastern area. So he's writing in a general sense to Jews everywhere in the Middle East, not to a particular congregation, at least from what we can tell. <clears throat> One thing we'll note right away as we read, and then maybe you have if you've read it, <clears throat> as Simon Kistemacher points out in his commentary, that Jude loves to express things in three parts. He just loves to give these you know, trios of things. We see this in his initial greeting and in the latter part of verse 1 as he describes his readers as called or elect, loved by God. Now, your text might show sanctified by God the Father. In the Greek, some Greek texts say it should be beloved or loved by the Father, <coughs> excuse me, and kept by Jesus Christ. So you have called, loved, and kept. The better Greek texts have that beloved, but we, can, we won't argue about that this time. In these words, we again see that our salvation is what? It's totally of God. Okay? We're called, we're loved by God the Father, we're kept by Jesus Christ. It is he who called us to himself. It is he who loved us or set us apart to be saved from our sins, and it is he who kept, keeps us by Christ Jesus. No one can pluck us out of his hands, and once he has saved us, we are saved for eternity. And of course, Jesus himself expresses that in texts like John chapter 10 and verse 28 and his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 12. Our salvation, and this is a comforting thought, should be to us as we go through the challenges that we face and all the heresies around us. Our salvation is secure in the hands of God and therefore our hope is a sure hope. We shall stand before him one day accepted in the beloved, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 6. Now verse two is also a triple blessing as Jude greets his readers with a prayer that God's mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them. <clears throat> God's mercy in choosing to save us rather than condemn us leads us to that peace that passes all understanding, which Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 7, and a peace with God, as we're told in Romans 5, 1, that is based upon the revealed love towards God. So mercy, peace, and love is multiplied to us. And as we see here, it, was, it would be enough, frankly, beloved, to have a small portion of God's mercy, a small portion of his peace, and a small amount of love given to us. But Jude requests here, not a meager portion, but it may be multiplied to us. He wants us to be blessed, really, exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. <clears throat> and as I read that text, it reminded me of the line from the song, 
The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. God's love is beyond our, our comprehension. Its, its measures are so great. And Judah's asking here that we would get a multiplied sense of his blessings, of his love and peace and care for us. Now in verse 3, Jude expresses his initial desire to write to his readers. He says, his dear friends, about their common salvation. In other words, the salvation in Christ that we share. And perhaps he had intended to write, as John MacArthur suggests, quote, a letter on salvation as the common blessing enjoyed by all believers, perhaps to emphasize unity and fellowship among believers, unquote. And when you think about it, it is important to remember that we're all saved by the same grace, same gift of faith, via the same blood of Christ. There's no different kinds of salvation. We're all saved by faith through, through God's grace in, in Christ. In fact, Paul states it pretty clearly in Galatians chapter 3, excuse me, and verse 28, when he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one in him. And there's a multitude of texts, I'm sure, as you can remember, throughout the New Testament, speaking of the importance of us being one in Christ. We're not in this section, you know, some on this side and some on another side and some with somebody else. No, we're all one in Christ. We're all saved in the same way. We're all kept in the same way. We're all beloved in the same way. However, it appears that Jude felt there was something more pressing here, a pressing need due to the proliferation of false teachers that were leading people astray from the true faith. And he's therefore he's urging believers to be faithful soldiers of Christ and to contend earnestly, not casually, not if you feel like it, not if it's just an opportunity, but no, content, be on guard, contend earnestly to do battle, meaning, of course, spiritually battle, not physically, for the body of truth that was delivered to them. It's important in the context here would indicate that he was urging his readers and us to not just contend for or defend their own faith in Christ, but for the whole body of Christian truth or doctrines that they have been taught and entrusted with by their pastors and teachers. In this passage, as one commentator put it, Jude speaks of Christian doctrine, that is, objective faith. And as Paul tells us in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, we must, quote, study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So it involves a contending, a studying, being sure of what we believe, that we might be able to share that with others without being confused, without confusing them or ourselves. So the challenge here, beloved, is to let us be eager students of the word, that we might be strengthened in our faith and be able to discern and rebuke errors and share truth accurately with others. Okay, we don't want to lead other people astray by saying things that aren't accurate to the scriptures. We want to be sure what we're, sh- we're saying. It encourages our own hearts as well as enables us to clearly present the gospel to those who need to hear the truth and to be sure that they keep to it because this is what he's specifically concerned about is these people he's writing to apparently have received the gospel, have believed in Christ, but there's false teachers coming in leading him astray. So he wants them to be on guard and to be sure they can defend the faith against these false teachers. Which will move us on to our next section, which is reminders of God's judgment. One of the key parts of Jude's letter here is not only to encourage us to stand firm, but to remind those uh, people of, that are in the church, especially those that are perhaps questionable as far as their faith is concerned and their beliefs, Remind them of God's judgment in the past on those who pretended to be his and ended up not being his and being judged by him. So the next four verses or so bring that, bring that out 
And like Peter, Jude uses examples of God's just judgment in the past to warn believers not to associate with these ungodly men who are troubling them. Let's read verses 4 through 7 here of our text. <clears throat> for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God, only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, in essence, Jude gives the reason for verse, in verse 4 for the change in the theme of his messages. Okay? He was starting out to talk about their common salvation, and he says, you know, I, I think I really need to deal with these, these guys teaching error right now. So he says, certain men have crept in, so I've got to take care of them. These false believers who no doubt pretended to be Christians in order to gain access to the church were, first of all, note, long ago ordained or marked out for this condemnation. That's kind of an interesting statement, which some people have had a lot of difficulty exegeting. The literal translation of the Greek here says, whose condemnations were written about long ago. Now, you'll note, Jude doesn't specifically uh, give us a scripture here to back up that statement, so we can't be sure what he's referring to in this verse. In fact, later in verse 14, he refers to an apocryphal book of First Enoch, so he may be thinking of it here as well, but we're, we're not sure. We have some similar words to this, and this is where 2 Peter kind of comes in as tying in the Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 says, For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not stumble. Let me read that again. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not stumble. The term appears in secular Greek literature per Simon Kistemacher and refers to the keeping of a list of either influential people or outlaws. So in other words, God's keeping a list of the godless that deserve condemnation, okay? Just like we know, of course, he keeps a list of the book of life. We're all written who are for trusting in Christ. We're written in the Lamb's book of life. The implication here is that God has a list of those who are deserving of judgment, but he has reserved it until a later time, okay? It's not an instant judgment, but it's going to be something that they will face because of their, their life and their re rejection of him. So that's the, the idea here. In fact, um, Paul declares the patience of God's wrath in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, wherein he withholds his just judgment on the wicked in order to bring all those he has, quote, prepared beforehand for glory into his kingdom. In other words, God is withholding judgment on the wicked because he's bringing his people in. And as he's doing that, he's letting the wicked do their way. And ultimately, the wicked will pay for their sins. But in the meantime, God's bringing his people in in the midst of all these uh, evil people. And we see that, of course, we've seen it in history, as God has, has brought nations up for a season and allowed them to flourish for a while, and then eventually he removes them because he's brought his people out and saved them. And that's going on today. We, we look around us and we can be frightened by groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and all these terrorist groups and thinking, how are they getting away with it? Well, they're not getting away with it, literally. God will deal with them ultimately. And he's, he's making a list of all those who we judge. But, it's, but we shouldn't be too 
quick to say, oh, they're all going to hell, because I just read an article the other day about the son of a Hamas leader who left Hamas because of the evil and the, and the, the, the terrorism and came to Christ and is now preaching out against his father and against all his relatives for what they're doing there. So God can bring even out of the most evil people we can think of, God can bring them out and save them. And at this time, he's withholding his judgment on some because he wants to bring his people out uh, of, those, of that group that they might be part of his kingdom. So that's something we can praise God for in his mercy that he has, even in the midst of what we consider terrible people, those who he ultimately will bring to himself. <clears throat> And as I mentioned here, Luke Jude likes to write his thoughts in triplets. So here in verse 4, he refers to these men, first of all, as ungodly, which is the exact opposite, of course, of what Christians ought to be. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, you might recall from our study of that, Paul describes them this way. He says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So we as God's people are to pursue holiness, right? 1 Peter 1.16, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God is holy, we need to be holy. Therefore, those who claim, claim to know God, yet live unholy lives, are not really his people. Secondly, if, as if to show how ungodly these men are, Jude says that they turn the grace of God into lascivious, lasciviousness or lewdness. In other words, a license for immorality. They assume that since God's grace is, quote, unmerited favor, it doesn't matter how they live. This is an antinomium spirit that shows that God's grace has really not been given to them at all. They pretend to be. They use the terms. They like to be a part of the church, but they really don't know God because their goal is to satisfy their lust, not to glorify God. In fact, turn with me back to Titus. Just a couple weeks ago, we, we dealt with this, but we're going to look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12 where Titus, Paul tells Titus what God's people should be doing as opposed to the wicked. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. But the point is that God has brought salvation to us to do what? to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, not to live in the light of it, not to, to enjoy them, which is what these antinomian Christians, or so-called Christians, are doing. Third, this group, not only do they, are they ungodly, not only do they deny God in the sense of, of deny his truths and live an ungodly life or a, an immoral life, but thirdly, <clears throat> they deny that Christ is Lord. They deny that he is, he is God at all. The Greek construction here in that text in verse 4 is that the word Lord refers to one person, our Lord and our God, Jesus Christ. These apostates show their true colors by denying Christ's lordship over them, thus showing they were never his to begin with. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 says, Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. These people who claim to be part of the church, and yet they deny that Christ is Lord, obviously they don't know him, and they are not part of God's people. Jude again turns to his pattern of three thoughts in verses 5 through 7, as he reminds his readers of how God punished those who apostatized in the Old Testament. This is very similar to Peter's teaching in 2 Peter chapter 2, 
verse in four, verses 4 through 7. Let's turn there just to get an idea. We can compare the two. Second Peter chapter 2 and verses two, 4 through 7. I'm sorry, verses 4 through 7. And we'll see how Peter and, and uh, Jude here use very similar language, if not the same in some cases. Verse 4 of chapter 2. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct, of the wicked. We'll stop right there. That's the text we want to read that shows the comparison here as we see in verses uh, 5 through 7 of what Jude is talking about. Going back, he does a little different, I guess you might say a little different angle on this. Uh, Peter's sequence, by the way, is chronological in order, whereas Jude's is more topical. He doesn't use the same events, but he uses similar events uh, in in all cases, not the same. And his is more topical with a stress on disobedience and rebellion against God and its consequences. His first example, as you see there in the text, is God's judgment on that generation who, after he delivered them, and you think about this, he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, uh, turned, they, they had the opportunity to go into the promised land. What happened? They turned away from him. They turned from him to worship a God of their own making. We see that back in Numbers chapter 26. In fact, let's turn back there just to get a quick look at what happened to these people of God who God saved from Egypt. You imagine the, the miraculous things they saw God do with the, the plagues, the, the ten plagues, and the, the ability to go through the Red Sea, everything that happened to them, and yet they turned away from God. Numbers chapter 26 and verses 64 and 65, God says, But among these there was not a man. He's speaking of, of all those who are numbered uh, before before the, uh, when they, those who rebelled against them. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priests when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So a whole generation basically passed away. Uh, it's also referred to in Hebrews chapter 3, and verses 16 through 19. It's a sad example of how quickly God's people forget the mercies of God. In fact, in fulfillment of promise, God had brought his people out of Egypt by signs and wonders, and yet they became impatient and they turned to other gods. According to Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, all the men over 20 years old numbered 603,000 plus, about 603,550, I think, is the actual number that's listed there. If we assume an equal number of women, that means over 1.2 people of that generation died in the wilderness during almost 40 years of wandering before they entered the promised land. A million people were, were considering the fact these men probably had wives and they rebelled against the Lord, so God judged them all. A million people died in the wilderness because they refused to obey God. That's, you know, that's part of God's judgment. These were part of God's chosen people, Israel. Yet they experienced his wrath because they rejected his leadership. And there's obviously a warning for us today, beloved. Think about it. If, if we claim to know Christ as our Savior, yet reject him as the Lord of our life and serve other gods, be that fame, fortune, whatever it might be, instead of him, we are subject to the wrath of God. 
because we're, find, we're proving that we're not really his. We can use the name, but if we're not living the life, then we're outside of that kingdom and we're subject to God's wrath eventually. The second example of Old Testament apostasy is that, like Peter's, of the angels who rebelled against God. It says that these angels, quote, did not keep their proper domain or positions of authority, unquote. Calvin says they left their station like military deserters, thus incurring the wrath of their commander, God. God made angels to serve him and to be messengers and servants to us, his people. They had their proper abode and place in God's creation. But apparently some, like Satan, weren't satisfied with the position God gave them and sought to exalt themselves. Now, that we don't know for sure what he's referring to here. He's referring to this, the angels that were thrown down with Satan or perhaps some other angels who rebelled and also were thrown down. But it says they are going to be held until God comes and ultimately judges them all. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you were to study a similar passage in 2 Peter, you would hear God does not tolerate rebellion among his creatures and the rebel angels he has reserved in chains until the great judgment day when all who rebel against him shall be punished with everlasting fire. And there's, if you want to look up a couple of references, we won't look at them now, but Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Matthew 25, 41, and Revelation 20, 10. Revelation 20, 10. <clears throat> so I guess the admonition here, beloved, is to be sure that you do not think lightly of what God has called you to do whether you're an angel or whatever you are. In this case, obviously, we're his people if we've been saved. God has an order in his creation, in his church, and in the family unit. Don't be deceived by the secular, worldly ideas that rebel against God's order and refuse to submit to his lordship. Husbands and fathers, what do we need to do? We need to be godly men and spiritual leaders in our homes, right? And women, Christian women, need to submit to and respect your husbands in the Lord and fulfill the role God has for you in the home. Children need to respect your parents as you grow and don't give in to false teaching that leads you to feminine, leads to the feminization of boys and the defeminization of girls. And there's a warning of that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. Finally, Jude makes a reference here to Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's wrath upon those who rebel against his creative order and reverse the role of men and women to pursue perversity and sexual immorality. Uh, the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a picture of the eternal wrath of God upon all those who pursue, pursue homosexuality or any perversion that twists God's created order for men and women. And you can see that back in Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 25. And sadly, let's face it, America has become more and more a place where such perversion is tolerated. In fact, accepted. I mean, let's face it. We need to pray that God in his mercy would turn the hearts of our leaders before he sends judgment upon our nation. For woe unto those who make excuses for such sin. Unfortunately, even the Pope recently made excuses for such sins. Consider Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, that portray God's giving men up to the sin. He gives them up, withdrawing his restraining hand of grace and allowing men to plummet into the depths of depravity. That's a scary thing. A scary thing when God withdraws his grace and lets men become as wicked as they want to be. And, let, and they will suffer the judgment for that sin. And they can't blame God. In fact, they can thank God that he restrained them, I guess, to a point. But once he withdraws his hand, they are become as wicked as they're going to be, and God will judge them accordingly. Oh, that men would hear and heed the warning of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is a very solemn text 
Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, we know that only by God's grace are we not one of those people. In fact, I think as Paul says in another text, we once were those people, but now we are the people of God. God brings us out of those sins, but he also withdraws his grace and allows others to wallow in that sin in which they will be judged for that sin. But that's a description, unfortunately, of our world today. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, drunkards, revilers, that's our world today. And we have to pray for God's grace that we would be safe from it and be able to be a light to it. Okay, let's move on then to the last a uh, few verses here we're studying today, verses 8 through 13. He gives further warnings and description of the heretics. As I said, this is kind of a, an apostle of the apostates, so he's going to give a description here in verses 8 through 13. But before we get there, let me just, as we mentioned, Judas following Peter's example here of giving Old Testament examples of God's judgment to his readers uh, to reinforce this point of, of the surety of God's wrath upon those in particular who have been blessed by him in, in a general sense but rebel against him in a true sense, against his order and his authority. And since God has ordained via the Holy Spirit to have both Peter and Jude write about these examples, we should not take them lightly. In fact, recall Samuel's words to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. He said, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And if you reject the word of the Lord as a supposed believer, you are going to be rejected from his kingdom. You will not be in his kingdom. You can't say, I love the Lord or I believe in the Lord and yet live contrary to his law and ignore his precepts. You're under his wrath and judgment, not his blessings. Let me put it as simply as Samuel did. God hates rebellion against him and his created order. And you can look up a, a, a reference text. It would be Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21, but let's look at our text here and read verses 8 through 13. Verse 8, and Jude, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beast. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, if they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees, without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness." forever. What a condemnation. Note again, Jude's use here of these three verbs. He uses three verbs to describe the rebellious acts of these men who are troubling the churches of his, his readers. They, number one, they defile or pollute the flesh. They reject authority and they engage in slander of celestial beings or angels. As we see here, Jude begins the sentence with likewise. In other words, 
he equates these heretics with these three rebellious groups he has named in the preceding verses. Okay, so he's connecting them all together. They, he calls them dreamers, probably meaning that they live out their immoral fantasies. They pollute their own bodies, being sexual immorality and perversion. Is this not prevalent in our land today, beloved? Unfortunately, we must watch closely to resist and avoid anyone who tries to get the church to compromise, even accept homosexuality or transgenderism as normal. We have to stand firm against that. Jude further describes that these men reject, are, are rejectors of authority. Woe to those who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. In fact, flip back with me to Psalm 2 real quick. Psalm 2, a very powerful psalm that speaks of the reign of Christ. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Part of that text is used in Handel's Messiah. God will judge those who reject him, and he will set his king on his holy hill of Zion. Christ will reign forever and ever. Now, as we mentioned a little earlier, those who reject the lordship of Christ cannot honestly claim him as savior. He has, what, bought us with his blood, if we are his, and therefore our hearts should bow in humble obedience to him and his will. In fact, in Peter's sermon during Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, and verse 36, he made this point very clear. He said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If he is your Christ, your Redeemer, then he must be your Lord as well, beloved. He must be. If he is not the Lord of your life, then you shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on you. John 3.36 On verse 9, Jude alludes to this apocryphal story of Michael the archangel disputing with Satan about the body of Moses. The point is not to give credence to a non-canonical book here, but to give an example of a proper order in God's kingdom. Instead of reviling as these heretics do, we should rather commit them to the Lord and let the Lord rebuke them. In fact, those words are a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 1 through 2. So Luke knew the Old Testament. I mean, Jude, I'm sorry, Jude knew the Old Testament. Turn back with me to Zechariah real quick, near the end of the Old Testament, just before Malachi, Zechariah chapter 3. This is a very powerful picture here of God speaking on the throne and describing his blessing on his people and his judgment on those who aren't. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him, and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand pick, plucked from the fire? So here we have this picture of God speaking and rebuking Satan. And that's what Jude is quoting here. The fact that he uses this apocryphal story is not uh, saying that that apocryphal story is therefore uh, inspired uh, scripture. Okay, But he's referring to something just like we... If we were teaching a, a lesson or something or speaking of a portion of scripture and we quoted from a line from a movie or something just to kind of you know, make a point or to say it's like this, it's like this type of thing. We use an example that's not based in scripture, but we're trying to get people to, to grasp the idea 
that's what he's doing here. He's using this apocryphal book. And at that time, you have to understand, uh, at the time of this writing, the, the apostles, and Paul refers to some apocryphal writings, as does Peter, the idea here was they were familiar with these works, and they knew that the people who were around them were familiar with them, so they made reference to them just to give them a sense of it's kind of like this. Okay, This is what we're speaking of, and to give them that thought and to recognize the importance of it. So we're not saying that we even know that Michael the Archangel disputed with Satan, but it was part of an apocryphal story, and he refers to it because he knows these Jews would probably be familiar with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In other words, as though we as God's people are to speak out against sin, we're also to allow the Lord to be the judge. Okay? We definitely stand against sin, but God will judge them. Okay? And we can pray for his mercy upon sinners as well as his just judgment when he sees fit to display it. Scripture tells us, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 7.1. This doesn't mean that we can't exercise a righteous judgment with careful discernment when dealing with those who rebel against God. But let us be careful lest we become hypocrites, that we judge others and make excuses for ourselves. But there comes a time when we have to stand and say, thus saith the Lord. And that, in a sense, is a judgment upon people. And we have to be careful that we do that out of love, not with a sense of beating people over the head with the Bible. <clears throat> Jude compares these heretics to brute beasts that move about by instinct and not by reason. So be careful of those false teachers or even professed fellow believers who seem to be ruled by passion and emotion rather than by the word of truth. And we see that a lot today, of course, in the charismatic movement and others where there's a lot of emotional appeal to believe something without real true scripture behind it. And we have to be careful about that. We need to go what the word says, not how our feelings lead us into doing something. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we as God's people should not have any emotions or feelings, but they should not dominate our life, but rather we should be subject to the Holy Spirit's teaching and his admonition. Jude again uses what? Three examples. Here we go again. As he continues his description of these deceivers in verse 11, first, he compares them to Cain. Cain was not only the first murderer, but the basis for his murderous ways was his what? His rejection of God's authority regarding sacrifices. Cain was envious and selfish, and thus these heretics are envious of those who truly know the Lord and receive his blessings. And you can see that back in, in uh, Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 2 and verse 5. And also it's referred to uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. The second person Jude compares these heretics to is Balaam. And of course, we know his story of receiving pay to curse the Israelites, yet God caused him to bless them instead. Uh, you can find that in Numbers chapter 22 verse 1 through, actually through chapter 24 and verse 25. It's a long section there, Numbers 22, 1 through 24, 25, all about Balaam and how he's trying to, he's been encouraged to, to curse the Israelites and he can't do it because God causes them to bless him. In other words, their motive for serving these people that Jude's comparing them to, like Balaam, their motive to serving the Lord is financial gain. They were greedy and would do whatever they, they could do that they could take advantage of the saints. That's what Jude's rebuking them for. He says, beware of those who come to church looking for handouts rather than the word of God and who scheme to get rich at the church's expense. And then finally, Jude refers to Korah, or some of your Bibles might say Kor, C-O-R-E. The story of Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 35, is a really a sad one. He rejected God's ordained authority, Moses, and therefore he and all his family suffered the judgment of God instantly there. Uh, beware, men, beware of making vain decisions that may adversely affect your whole family. Let 
let's all seek to respect and obey those whom God has put over us, lest we incur his chastening hand against our rebellion. Lastly, in this section, we see Jude resort to metaphors here. He describes the heretics as spots in your love feasts, clouds without water, trees with no fruit, raging waves, wandering stars. All those things are useless, and they leave people without, with an empty feeling. In other words, they can't satisfy us. Think about it. You know, we, we can't get anything out of clouds without water or trees with no fruit uh, or wandering stars. They don't benefit us. We need to be people who are pure, who are refreshing, who are fruitful, who are calm, and who maintain their place where God has put them. The end of these heretics, as Jude describes them, is the blackness of darkness forever. You kind of shudder when you think of that. The blackness of darkness forever. They will never see the light of God's truth. They'll never see the light of God. They'll suffer in judgment forever. But those who are truly in Christ, what do we have? We look forward to the, the brightness of Christ's glory and the light of God's presence. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our future? What is our future? Be sure it's in the latter group, true followers of Christ and not the former. If you're not sure, then we need to seek Christ in true repentance and faith today. So in conclusion, what are we as God's people to do when we see error abounding on every side around us? Well, should we cower? Should we hide? Should we become hermits? Should we, or should we engage in fruitless debates with people that don't believe the truth? We cannot argue any unbeliever into heaven, beloved. We really can't. But we should not be ashamed or afraid to stand up for the truth and to hold up the biblical standard of righteousness as a standard that will bring the blessings of God on a nation. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Boy, we're under a lot of reproach here in the United States. We cannot force a nation as a whole to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We should not tolerate such error in our churches, and especially if the rebellious attitude of some leads to an excuse for sin, lack standards of holiness, and morality within the body of Christ. And though we're not yet perfect in and of ourselves, we're not totally sanctified. If we claim to be God's people, then we need to have a standard of conduct that is set forth in the Word of God and not by the changing morals of a society that hates God around us. We need to pursue holiness and be on guard against any who would water down God's standards of truth. And we need to be ready, as was already suggested in our prayer time, to speak the truth in love and to tell people of Christ because they need him or else they will face the wrath of God, as Jude points out here in our text. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer.